Welcome to Succession Stories. I'm your host, Lori Barkman, founder of Small.Big. As an exit value planning and M&A advisor, I call myself a business transition Sherpa. My mission is guiding entrepreneurs on ways to build value in your business and then benefit by letting it go. On this show, we spotlight the theme of transitions, not only to reward you for your hard work, but also to ensure that you look back on your succession without regret. Catch all the episodes and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to visit SuccessionStories.com to sign up for our newsletter. Here's to your success. Kevin Trout built his company, Grandview Medical Resources, with the intent to sell one day, which he did in 2011 to a strategic buyer. Revenues were growing at an impressive rate, reaching nearly 30% year over year. But this pace created too much risk in the business. We talked about key decisions Kevin made to grow enterprise value rather than only focus on short-term profits. I loved our conversation about four phases of preparing your business for sale and his reflections on what he would have done differently. His appreciation for trusted advisors through Vistage was also key, and he credits them for helping maximize the value of his business. Today, Kevin pays his experience forward as a Vistage chair, advising high-performing executives and business owners on growing their businesses and enhancing their lives. Kevin's a super guy, and I'm excited to share this episode with you. Kevin, welcome to Succession Stories. I'm excited to have you here. I was recently on your radio show, and it was interesting to to be on the other side of the mic. So when you're here, when you're here with me today, I'm really looking forward to our conversation, talking about your experience as an entrepreneur, growing your business, selling your business, and then what you do today as a trusted advisor with entrepreneurs and CEOs. So welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Glad to be here. Great. Let's start with you. What's your background? How did you get started in owning your own business? Well, short version is I fell into medical sales right after college. I was introduced to a guy from a fraternity brother, and he said, "You are you a friend of Dave's? I said, yeah. He said, well, we need another guy in Pittsburgh. If you want the job, it's yours. That was my entire interview. That was the interview? That's it? That was the interview. <laughs> I know and a guy. Yeah, right. Yeah, so you know, right? So I spent 11 years with that company. I started off in doing some medical equipment uh, service. And then four months later, they said, oh, you're really good uh, showing the nurses how to use our equipment. We'll just make you a sales rep. That was my entire interview for the sales job. And so I became a sales rep and ended up becoming uh, very, very successful with that company. I got promoted four times in the last five years I was with them. And uh, I was in charge of the entire East Coast by the time I left and was recruited to another company and started the Pittsburgh office from scratch, built that up. Then I got recruited to another company. And uh, so I spent the first 15 years of my career working for three different medical equipment manufacturers. My last job I was in charge of, well, I had been, I was hired to be the regional manager for this company. I had the entire Eastern half of North America, Canada, through Chicago, down to New Orleans and Puerto Rico. And then they offered me the vice president sales job, which would be international. I said, okay, great. Well, problem was six months into that job. They said, oh, by the way, you do have to relocate to our home office, which was Tulsa, Oklahoma. Like there's nothing in Tulsa. 
And I didn't really want to relocate. Other companies wanted me to relocate too, but I didn't want to leave. So by default, I ended up starting my own company in 1996 so that we could stay in Pittsburgh. And I picked up some product lines and became an independent distributor. My company was Grandview Medical Resources. I picked up four product lines and to get started. And six months later, I had 13 product lines because people I had worked with in the past companies found out I started my own company and they started sending their manufacturers to me saying, you're looking for an independent distributor. This is the guy in Pittsburgh. And I ended up picking up a whole bunch of product lines real fast. So you had a lot of experience in the industry. People knew you and that really helped you get started. So you didn't necessarily envision yourself as an entrepreneur. Like you said, you didn't want to move to Tulsa. No offense to Tulsa. <laughs> so that's exciting. So the core business was was medical supply distribution. Re- right. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, specialty equipment to hospitals. That was our that was our focus. Okay. So you started in ninety six and how did you grow the business? What was your strategy? Well, I had some particular expertise in opening new hospitals, getting into new accounts, competing against our handful of competitors which is why I was promoted so many times in that first company. I became a sales trainer. I was part of my role. Then um, the third company where I was the vice president of sales, they had never grown more than 10% a year. But when I came in as a regional manager, I grew the business 31% in the first year. And I was on track to grow another 36% second year when they made me the VP of sales. And I said, how'd you do it? I said, well, I have my, I have my way. Right. And so when I started my own company, I just continued to do what I was doing before. And we grew very quickly. It was, it was a great ride. You had a focus on hospital systems in Western Pennsylvania. You had the relationships. So I'm guessing in terms of roles in the company, were you the primary rainmaker? You were the lead? <laughs> yeah, I was a sales guy, right? I was the sales manager teaching other people how to sell. So when I started my company, I was out there face-to-face with all the clients, the customers, opening up new hospitals, getting them to do business with us and started to hire some salespeople and some admin and, you know, just grew the business. But I was, we were a sales organization first and foremost, right? That was our primary thing. So, yeah, we grew very quickly. What were some of the main things now as you reflect back? Because you sold the company. What year did you sell it? I sold it at the beginning of 2011, and then it came with a five-year employment agreement. So I didn't actually retire until 2016. So I stayed on for five years, which was way too long. <laughs> but it was an earnout, so I stayed for the entire earnout. How big did the company get? I grew my company to 14 million in sales. I had 60 employees. I had three offices. Our main one was in uh, Pittsburgh. Then I had a two satellites, one in Charleston, West Virginia, and one in Altoona, because our geography was all of Western Pennsylvania and all of West Virginia. And there's 101 hospitals in Western Pennsylvania. There's 75 hospitals in West Virginia. So our market opportunity was 178 hospitals. And by the time I sold, we were doing business with 90% of them. Wow. So yeah, 14 million in revenue is pretty sizable business. And did you build your company with the intent to sell it? Yeah, I did, actually. I never really looked at it as, oh, this is my baby. I want to keep it forever. I actually followed in the footsteps of the the guy that hired me with that first interview, right? He built his company up. We were an independent distributor. He sold to one of the manufacturers. We stayed on, grew that company, and then he sold it, and then he retired. 
he was my mentor. So I was with him through that whole journey. And I said, if I ever get a chance to do this, now I understand how to do it. Didn't realize I didn't understand enough about how to do it, but I felt like I was along for the ride because he confided in me on some of the things that are going on behind the scenes that he didn't share with other employees. And so I get to watch from sitting on the bench and watching how the whole thing transpired. I said, if I ever get a chance to start my own company, I think I see how this could play out. Right. And so that was always in the back of my mind. I figured I would sell at some point, just a question of who would I sell it to? And of course the opportunity came. It was actually the largest manufacturer that we were representing and who was a significant portion of my revenue. They decided to roll up all their independent distributors around the country and, and go direct. So they were acquiring their distributors that were doing well. And I was the number one fastest growing distributor. So I was number one on their hit list. And then the, and then the offices where the distributors weren't doing so well, they just terminated their contract and opened their own office. So were you contemplating a sale at that time? We call this a little bluebird. When a little bluebird comes to you and says, Hey, do you want to sell? Were you on the market at that point? No, I wasn't on the market, but I knew it was coming from that manufacturer And I saw it as a strategic sale, right? How did you know? Well, they approached me at one point, probably five years before I sold, and said, we are wanting to go direct. We want to roll up our distributors. We absolutely want to acquire your company when the time is right. And it has to be right for you, and it has to be right for us. Well, it wasn't the right time. For a couple of reasons, it just wasn't the right time for me um, and for them to, to acquire me. So we pushed it off for five years. But that five-year period, it was, yeah, pretty sure this is what's going to happen. And at that time, when you said you weren't ready versus when you were ready, what was the big difference between those two periods of time, do you think, for yourself? Just figuring out, okay, at some point I'm going to sell this. What's the right time? The timing worked out really well for me because I was 54 when I sold the company. I stayed on for five years, and I was going to retire at age 59. And that to me was my ideal time frame. So I wasn't ready to sell. They weren't ready to acquire everybody. They, they only acquired like two or three companies in that early stage. And then they waited. Um, they actually had some tax issues they had to deal with. So they couldn't acquire anybody else for another five years. They had uh, some family, it's a family run business. They had some family tax stuff that they had to deal with. And so they couldn't acquire anybody else until like four years later. And then they started the ball rolling again. Did you have a magic number? A lot of people use that phrase. Did you have a magic number (laughs) for what you wanted to sell the company for? I had my number that I wished I would have gotten. And then I had a number that I figured I would settle for. And I got, I I wish I got a little bit more than what I was willing to settle for. Was the deal based on net income, EBITDA, and multiple of those? It was an asset sale. Asset sale. Okay. And so what do you think would have moved the needle? I know we have benefit of hindsight here. What do you think would have potentially moved that needle in the multiple? And I don't know if you can share how they were valuing the business versus how you were looking at it and that gap or that delta. What do you think might have changed that formula? Wow, great question. (laughs) Because what I know now, I wish I would have known then, right? There's a lot of things that I didn't know at the time. And I'm not dissatisfied with the deal. Don't get me wrong. I think I had a very fair deal. Could have gotten a little bit more, probably if I would have focused on a few things. One of the 
challenges that I was faced with was we were growing too fast, right? I had a conversation with my banker. I had a million dollar line of credit and I wanted it up to 1.5 million. And he said, no. I said, but we're growing. He goes, yeah, you're growing too fast. The maximum sustainable growth rate for a distribution company is between 20 and 25% a year. And you're exceeding that right at the moment. And so you're too much of a risk because companies that, that grow too fast will outstrip their cash flow. I said, yeah, that's why I'm asking for my line of credit to go up. And he said, no, you got to get control of it. And he was right. My, because from that point forward, I really focused on strategic growth and intentional growth. And I was able to maintain a average annual growth rate of 23% a year. I was right there in the zone. The problem was that I already acquired some debt in order to grow the company. I was pouring all the profits back into the company and I was also borrowing money to, to, to build the company. Well, I borrowed too much and then I was too slow to pay it down. I should have set some more capital side. I was pouring every penny back into the growth of the business. Yeah, I was just in a big hurry. And I thought maximum value would come from the highest revenue number and the number of contracts we had with hospitals. Typically, they were worth three years worth of business. I would say that's not enough. You got to focus on a lot of other parts of the business. What you generally point out in the value builders assessment, which I wish I would have had, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, showing a trend of you know significant revenue growth is is yeah you need to have that, but that's that's not enough. You've got to have all these other things in place, which is what I wasn't focusing on. I was missing some things that I should have been focusing on. Had I done it differently, I would not have borrowed as much money to fund the growth of the company. I would have been more intentional, more strategic. And whatever I had borrowed, I would have paid down sooner. I would have made an intentional effort to get that down quicker. So that held things up. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing all that. And also your reference to this business assessment that I do with clients and helps them see the strengths in their business, where the risks and gaps are, and also helps them see an estimate of value. How do we look at your company from the lens of a third party, right? If they're looking to acquire your business, because ultimately that's what the business is worth is in the eyes of a potential acquirer. And, and of course, this is what you're referring to because you saw it from their side, the risks, right? Essentially, if it's, whether it's a strategic buyer or a financial buyer, they're looking at the predictability of your future cash flow. They're looking at your balance sheet. They're looking at uh, some of those factors you mentioned. But what I love to talk about with folks are these eight value drivers. What are the eight core things that an acquirer might look at in the business to say, okay, here's some strengths. Here's some things that might, you know, move the multiple up or might move the multiple down. And so you alluded to that. So let's spend some time on that. As you think now back to some of the challenges, I know you and I have talked kind of offline. And one of the things that we talked about was the team, right? And having the team of people around you that were supporting you on a day-to-day basis that you weren't the chief firefighter and bottle washer <laughs> and all of that. We call that the hub and spoke problem right? Where an owner is in the center of everything, all the decisions are going through that person, the processes, the relationships, the key relationships. You had a team, right? You had 60 people. But at what point did you really think about how, you know, this involvement for yourself? And you're probably working 70 hour weeks, I'm guessing, or even higher. I had a horrible work-life balance. Horrible. Worked all week, worked all weekend. That was, that was not fun. Now, what did that do to your health? 
ah, I wasn't healthy. I didn't take time to exercise. I wasn't eating right. And I was always working. No, it wasn't fun. My Vistage group, they helped pull me out of that vortex, that black hole. <laughs> so some people might not know if they're listening, they don't know what Vistage is. Maybe you could spend a minute on what is Vistage. So uh, I appreciate that. Vistage is the largest CEO peer advisory forum membership organization in the world. There's 24,000 members worldwide in 25 countries. It's been around since 1957. And when I started my business, I was a sales guy, right? I was a sales manager. And then I started a company and then I started hiring people. And this company grew up around me and I realized I've got a lot of sales experience. I don't have a lot of CEO or or, uh, experience. Um, I had some leadership experience, but I didn't have a business CEO experience. So I joined Vistage a few years into my company after I started my company um, and became part of a Vistage group. Vistage groups are made up of business owners and CEOs. They sit in in a round table uh, sort of format, usually around 15 or 16 members in each group. We meet once a month and we help each other process our toughest decisions, our toughest challenges. And we provide perspective from, you know, 15 other people who sit in the same seat that, that we do just on a different company or a different business. So, and we have some subject matter expert speakers who come in and do workshops for us on leadership. Um, it's a great experience. Like I should, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. You're one of my business speakers. Yeah. And uh, it was a great experience for me personally. It helped me grow my business as fast as, it did, as I did. They uh, helped me sell my company because we had an attorney in the group and he negotiated the sale for me. It was all good. Um, but anyway, so that's what Vistage is. Gotcha. Yeah. So the role of advisors comes up a lot on the show. So it's, it's good to know that you had people who had some experience that you were relying on as you were building the company. And then when you were deciding to sell it, you also relied on them for, for their expertise, which is great. So Vistage is definitely an organization for CEOs to check out if, if you're listening and, and you want to learn more about them. And I'll also include a link in the show notes. So back to your story about selling the company and the challenges that you've sort of faced along the way. The other thing that you had mentioned to me was revenue concentration. I think you had a significant percentage of your revenue was from one of your largest clients. Is that correct? Yeah. By then we had 10, we represented 10 different manufacturers and the one I sold to was almost 50% of my revenue. The other nine made up the other 50%. So, yeah. So to go to the largest concentration, I mean, for them, right, it was a win because they were basically buying up that market share from their competitors. That was their strategy. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, well, this is really helpful. So what are the other things that you might reflect on? If a business owner is listening and they're thinking about what you said about the balance sheet, about debt, about the team and how to get more of that work-life balance, what might be some of the like, let's say three things, what would be three things that you might give them some insights on that they say, okay, you really need to think about this if you're starting to think about selling your company? So number one, I would tell them to start early. It's it's never too early to start building value in your business. And when I talk about building value, it doesn't just mean growing revenues. It doesn't just mean adding staff and people to your your work chart. Um, I think you really need to focus on those eight business drivers that you allude to in your value builders. Now, I wish I would have had the value builders assessment back when I was getting ready to sell because not having that, I didn't have an awareness of some of the areas in which I could have strengthened the company, maybe gotten a little bit more value out of it. So I, I missed that. And I would encourage everybody to 
to really understand what that entails and start doing it now. Even if they're not thinking about selling their business anytime in the near future, why not? Why not build value in your company right now anyway? It doesn't make any sense not to, right? So I think that's number one. Um, I would also think that um, understand the business's life cycle, right? I, I allude to the fact that starting a business from scratch and growing it is like driving a manual transmission car, right? When you're in first gear, you're the owner, you start the company, your main focus is to go out and get customers and bring in revenue, right? And you, everybody wears a lot of hats, even though there's only a few people. You get to a certain point where you got to push in the clutch and shift into second gear because now you've got some revenue coming in. You got, you've got customers, right? You start to add some salespeople. You start to add an office admin. You start to get a bookkeeper, whether it's full-time or fractional. You get not in, you know, some of these. Uh, so the company starts to grow in second gear. Profits start to appear, and they're kind of nice in second gear. Um, and if you wait too long to shift the clutch into third gear, what happens is next thing you know, you have 20 people and they're all reporting to the, to the owner. That's not sustainable long-term. Leaders can only really manage maybe six direct reports. And when you have 10, 15, 20, nah. now the CEO becomes the bottleneck. That owner becomes the bottleneck to the company's growth. So that's when you have to push in the clutch and shift into third gear. Third gear is when you start to bring in some professional managers um, you put a leadership team in place and they start to manage the different departments. And so you only have your leadership team uh, reporting to the, to the owner, the, the CEO, but the leadership team manages the different departments and it allows you to grow even more. And that business owner takes one step more away from the day-to-day activity. He's no longer making sales calls, but he, he will go out and he'll, he'll, he'll participate in the really important sales calls with the salesperson but he doesn't have any of his own customers anymore. Now, here's the trick. In second gear, profits are really nice, right? You got a f- little family of employees reporting to the owner. And a lot of owners don't understand what it takes to get into third gear because when they start to bring in professional managers, profits to just disappear. And they're deathly afraid of that. They're deathly afraid of giving up the profits. Um, but it's necessary because when you get the fourth gear, right? Which I call overdrive. Profits come back exponentially greater than they were in second gear. And the owner doesn't work in the business anymore. He has a leadership team that does all the tactical and the owner is just a strategic visionary and makes sure that the company's moving in the right direction. But his leadership team is responsible for all of the activities and all the tactical day-to-day stuff. And, you know, you hold them accountable for the P&L profitability, Right. Getting to fourth gear, from second gear to fourth gear is where a lot of business owners hesitate. Uh, and, and I think it was a Vistage speaker that actually sort of laid out the four phases. Um, and, I, and I said, that sounds to me like this, right? And I've used that analogy ever since. And it made so much sense. And I actually followed that path. I, I, I gave up my profits and shifted into third gear brought in some professional managers. I had a VP of operations. I had a VP of finance. I had a VP of administration. And then I still ran the salespeople, but I wasn't selling to anybody directly. I was just more involved in the, in the big deals. And I couldn't afford those people at the time, but boy, did it pay off. And we got the fourth gear and my life was so much easier, right? Because in fourth gear, 
you don't have to work 40 hours a week, right? You can put in 30 and have a wonderful work-life balance. That's nirvana, right? And profits are nice, which is, that's the time to sell, which is when I did. Um, the real trick is, A, understanding what the four phases are. B, more importantly, I think, knowing when to push in the clutch. The timing is very important because if you push in the clutch too soon, you stall the engine. Right? Yeah. You're, 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 you're spending too much money. If you, if you hesitate to push in the clutch and you wait too long, the tachometer goes in the red zone and people get burned out. And the number one person that gets burned out is you, the business owner. And I was right there in first and second gear. Um, should have pushed the clutch in maybe a little sooner, but uh, the point is I got into each of the different phases. It all, it all worked out for me. And when I got the fourth gear, profits were really, really nice. That was my best income. And uh, I wasn't having to work 40 hours a week. That's a great story. I love how you packaged it. And it's easy to understand, I think, in that, with that analogy of the car and, and moving it forward. A couple of things just to underscore that you said. One was, you know, you're really trying to build a company that could really thrive without you, right? So that you yeah. had the team, you were willing to sacrifice profits to build enterprise value. You had that perspective and it, and it did pay off. There is a difference between, right, sort of this profit-driven mindset. And we all, we all want that, especially if we think that that's going to help build the value in the company. But these trade-offs of not hiring the more let's say the person with more expertise who's going to have a higher compensation package could be the wrong decision for that reason, right? Where that lower level person might not build the enterprise value for you over time. So that's a really, really important thing. And then also, you know, surrounding yourself with that team that it could ultimately free you up to go do other things and, and enable you to fulfill your vision of, you know, building this company to sell. So I appreciate you sharing those actionable ideas. I want to shift gears to, I use that analogy, (laughs) (laughs) shift gears to talking about what you do today, because it's a great segue, I think. And also, you know, I, I obviously know you, we worked a lot together and I have appreciated not only as a colleague, but also this friendship that we're developing. So we've had a lot of conversations and we've gotten to know each other well. I believe in your comments and hopefully it's coming across, you know, you're a great executive coach. What have you done after selling your business? I would love you to talk about that transition because spoiler alert, you know, you're a Vistage chair and you've, <laughs> you've now embraced this other side of working with CEOs to help them be successful. So talk a little bit about that. You know, why did you decide to become a Vistage chair and what do you enjoy the most about that role? So I appreciate that question because I think the most fun I had as a business owner was coaching and mentoring the the staff that I brought on board, especially the salespeople. I had an awesome team of salespeople and I spent a lot of time training them and they all became super successful. They're still doing, they're still crushing it out there. Um, so they're, they're all doing really well. And I, I really enjoyed the coaching and mentoring part. And as I got closer to selling the business and I knew we were going to do that. Um, yeah, I'm going to retire at age 59, but what am I going to do? Right because I don't relax well and everybody in my family lives to a hundred. So that's in our genes. So what am I going to do? Right. And I think working after retirement, people say, ah, you know, you still want to stay relevant. I don't think it has anything to do with relevant. I think it has everything to do with engagement. I think you have to stay engaged after retirement, both physically and and mentally, right. Got to stay physically active and physically engaged, but you also have to stay mentally engaged. And I wanted to do that. Um, 
So as I approached my permanent retirement, right, my five-year employment agreement was ending, um, I had some consulting firms approach me. Uh, one was the predictive index people, the behavioral assessments. And so for me, it was, oh, yeah, I, I, yeah, that would be great. I could do that. So right after I retired, quickly after that, I ended up working with uh, predictive synergistic systems uh, as an independent coach using a predictive index. And I think I ended up with maybe 25 clients. And then soon after that, Vistage, where I'd been a member for 16 years, they approached me, so we need more Vistage chairs. Um, oh, yeah, that would be great because I get to give back to the community that gave so much to me. So in 2018, I went to the Vistage Academy in July. So it's actually three years this month that, uh, that I became a Vistage chair. And so I've been growing the Vistage practice I really enjoy coaching and mentoring other business owners and, and executives as they're coming up behind me because, Hey, you don't have to make the same mistakes I did, right? You learn from my mistakes. Um, and a lot of their experiences that they're going through right now, I've already been through them, right? Just how to start a company was a challenge, right? It takes longer than you think it should, maybe three times longer than you think it should probably <laughs> yeah. it takes five times as much money as you think it should cost you. But once right. you get it off the ground, I think you really need to understand those four phases and most business owners don't. Um, and then what's it like to sell the business? I went through that. So um, that's a long answer to a short question. Well, it's a full 360. It's a full 360. And it's, I think, a great role for you. There's something I want to rewind on. You brought it up a couple of times. You, you mentioned an earnout, And can you explain what an earnout is and how it was structured for you for that five-year period? Sure. The earnout is basically when I get to hold the mortgage. <laughs> so they gave me a down payment, right? A very hefty down payment. And then it was based on a five-year earnout, which is why my employment agreement was five years. And, it, and my particular earnout was based totally on top line revenue. I got a percentage of the top line revenue, which was my incentive to continue to grow the revenue for over that five-year period, because um, whenever the revenues went up, my monthly earnout check went up. It was, it was a percentage of the total I didn't have control of the operating expenses. They did. Um, there was a few variable ones, of course, that I was responsible for, but most of them I didn't have control over. So really it was about driving revenue. That was my earnout. So I got a very hefty salary to run, continue to run my geographical region. And I got the earnout checks every month based on the top line revenue for the month. And at the end of five years, um, it all came to, to a closure. When you first sold the company, then it wasn't a hundred percent buyout. They had reserved over the five-year period. Did it was it an equal twenty percent each year? Uh, no, it was it, no. It kept getting bigger as as the revenues continued to grow. After I after uh, each each year it was bigger. Gotcha. The the, because um, there was a kicker on top. Yeah, it was basically top line revenue. If it you know if we were doing a million dollars, I got a percent of a percentage of a million. Um, if the next month we did 1.2 million, I got my percentage was the same, but it was on 1.2 million, not 1 million. So it, and it fluctuated a little bit every once in a while, numbers would go up and then come down and go up. So it was, it was, I didn't actually know what the final number was going to be. Okay. When I, when I signed <laughs> up on year one, I didn't know what the final number was going to be in year five, but I had the confidence that if it's based on top line revenue and we continue to grow the way we had been growing, the number is going to be pretty healthy. So really, it was negotiating the down payment. That was where the negotiation came in. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thank you for that extra explanation. <laughs> so, so, Kevin, 
I love to ask everyone that comes on the show if they have a favorite quote, something that inspires you about entrepreneurship or leadership. When I was 17, I worked for a rental company and the boss there, he had this one quote that I, I've been using it my entire life. He said, everyone's allowed to make mistakes. You're just not allowed to make the same ones twice. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I told everybody that. And so even in my company, they thought that was my quote. They thought I came up with it. And he called that, that's one of my Kevinisms, as they called them. And that was one of their favorites. Because what it did was, it said, hey, if you make a mistake, you're not going to get chastised. Like, we just have to learn from it, okay, so that we don't do it again. And so I think everybody really appreciated the fact that they weren't, they weren't afraid to make a mistake. But guess what? We were going to have a discussion after that mistake occurred on what do we learn from it? How are we going to use that lesson going forward so we don't repeat the same mistake? And let's go forward in it with a, a new uh, framework, right? And I, and I think everybody really appreciated that. I would say my second quote, this goes about, this has to do with culture, um, which now that I know a lot more about culture and the eight steps to uh, create the culture you want, drive it to your organization, thanks to David McLennan. Um, I would say culture, you know, the, there's an old saying, revenues cure a lot of ills in a company. I don't think that's true. My quote is revenues cures the bills. Culture cures the ills. <laughs> because if your revenues go up and you don't have a good culture, those, those problems are simply going to actually get worse as your company grows. And I think culture cures the ills within the organization. So if you have climbing revenues, and you, and you intentionally create the culture you want, your chances of being successful skyrocket. And so that's one of my other more recent quotes that I like to. I like it. I like your modifier on that. <laughs> so if people want to reach out to you, Kevin, and get in touch and learn about what you do, what's a great way to find you online? And by the way, you should mention your radio show. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. So first is LinkedIn. You can find me on LinkedIn. Second is um, you can go to vistage.com. Um, I will have my own website pretty soon. The, uh, my email address is kevin.trout at vistagechair.com. And I would encourage everybody to tune into my radio show. It's on 101.5 FM uh, every Tuesday afternoon at 2.30. And it's called Three Rivers Leadership. It's where I get to interview the high-performing CEOs and business owners in our Pittsburgh community and, and get to know their backgrounds and their leadership styles. And it's a 30-minute show. And after it airs the next day, it'll go up on the podcast world. And you can find the past episodes on podcastpittsburgh.com. And when you drop down the box of different podcasts, Three Rivers Leadership is the last one on the list. So Perfect. And my episode will be there soon. So I'll be sure to include that and the show links too, and also on my website. And because you had mentioned the value builder assessment, I just want to make sure people know if they are interested in, in getting a complimentary assessment of your business and your strengths and your opportunities, you know, to reach out to me for that, I'd be happy to talk with you. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was a great lessons learned and appreciate all your actionable ideas. So thanks. Thanks again for coming. Hey, thanks for having me. And I appreciate it. Lori, it's always great chatting with you. And uh, I definitely enjoyed interviewing you a few days ago for my show. You, yours was one of the best interviews. Ever. 
That's awesome. Also, because my parents were sitting in on the interview, so they were silently observing. I'm glad it went well. Kevin, thanks again for being here. All right. Thanks, Lori. My objective is for you to have a lucrative and successful succession. If you want to understand the value of your company today, the potential net proceeds of a transaction, and your financial needs after you leave the business, that's a great place to start. The sooner you understand these numbers, the more time you'll have to close the gap if there is one. Take the next step by requesting an initial meeting to begin planning for your business transition and strategic exit today. Request a call with me by visiting smalldotbig.com. That's smalldotbig.com. I look forward to speaking with you.